0: Welcome back to Series 5 of Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. Starting the new series, we've got a very special guest for you today, the great Robert Forster. Robert has just released a new album, The Candle and the Flame. Featuring nine new songs, the album's a strong contender for the best record of Robert's solo career. Some of you will have followed Robert's journey from his time in the go betweens through to now. The album was recorded in Brisbane, which is where Robert lives and where I'm talking to him today. Robert's wife, Karen, was recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer. They've been married for 32 years, and he talks about the impact that has had on them as a couple and as their family, and uh, the writing of his song for Karen, She's a Fighter. We also go way back and talk about Robert's earliest influences, his songwriting process, and even his favourite cricketer. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a good rating wherever you're listening. Big thanks to Mariam from EMI, Daryl Bailey, and Jason at RecordWorks Studios for his post-production. Here's Robert Forster. Hello, Robert. Welcome to Time to Talk. It's really good to see you.
1: Lovely to be here, Sean. Lovely.
0: Here we are in Brisbane. I'm kind of thinking about the first time we met. You, you won't remember this, but I, I do. Okay, tell um, me. Your first solo record, it came out. and oh. I remember the record label had a, a headquarters over at Tuong, I think, and I remember coming into the boardroom and you and Karen were sitting on the floor. And I came wow. and we ended up talking about that first record. So it's nice all these years later. <laughs> to be talking to you again about the new record
1: wow that's I, I have I must admit I don't have a memory of being in that room or so
0: yeah uh, no long time ago yes but the the candle and the flames, the new record and I want to talk to you about that and a whole bunch of other things sure. too and I'm sort of wondering what was the big bang for you in terms of falling in love with music
1: the am radio. Um, and when, and I really didn't even know I was falling in love with it. I was just, I was, we didn't have a record player in the house, you know, in the family house. My parents didn't play instruments. Um, they obviously didn't have a record player and, but there was a radio on while my father went to work that would play in the morning and a mixture of, it was four QR, which is 612 now, um, ABC. And so they'd be a mixture of, from what I can remember, news. It wasn't song after song that was talking and then they'd play a song and it was just before the Beatles hit and I would have been five. And I, it, I was just – and I remember all those songs that were played then um, and so music just went in uh, – And I listened to that AM radio on and off through the 60s.
0: And then when things like the Beatles did hit, was like your AM radio of the day playing those things? Yeah, like I
1: I remember Love Me Do. Right. Um, And I remember Beatlemania. And, of course, they came to Australia in 64, um, which really ramped it up. And, um, like, I had a Beatle guitar, like a white Beatle guitar. And uh, it was so mad. I can remember going to service stations when we'd, um, and you'd go and you'd get beetle stickers, you know, at, that's how, you know, like omnipresent they were. Um, so I, I, remember, I remember that, you know, going in a vague way from like, you know, like uh, Ray Charles and Ricky Nelson and Andy Williams and all of these things to the Beatles, yeah. you know, that's sort of 62 to 63, 64 as a child, um,
0: yeah, so the be- I remember that. It's funny, I know you're a Bee Gees fan, I just found out the other day, the Bee Gees play just a few hundred metres from here. Oh really, at where? At the Red Hill Skating Rink. Oh yeah. Yeah, which I didn't know was a venue for bands until no, recently. No,
1: I didn't know that either. Wow, okay, that's, I can yeah. well imagine that, you know, they would have played everywhere.
0: yeah. And then what about? I know you're a Credence fan, a Buddy Holly mm. fan. Did that all come out of the AM radio? Credence
1: did. Um, Credence were, Creedence were like, looking back on it, were like the, the way people, older musicians than myself, talk about like Hank Williams or mm. um, Muddy Waters or Helen Wolf. You know, that was like, that was as raw and as rough especially with Fogarty's voice and just the groove of the band is what you could hear on AM radio in the late 60s. Uh, yeah, like those, all that, that run of singles really grabbed me. Fogarty's voice totally grabbed me and they were my first love of really rock music. Um, you know, like it just shows me like at the age of 12, I was drawn to rootsy music, mm. which, which... For a 12-year-old stuck in the – not stuck, living in the Brisbane suburbs, that was as funky and as rootsy as I could get. Um, Buddy Holly, I got through American Pie, you know, like um, through um, Don McLean. Um, That came out. That was a huge hit. And he started – he was, you know, banging on about Buddy Holly. And so – because to me, like, how would I have heard Buddy Holly? You know, um, there's no records in the house. Buddy Holly's, you know, the late fifties, AM radio was not playing the late fifties It's music. So, I got a. uh, By this time, I had a little like dance Set record player, and I bought a uh, a buddy two Buddy Holly records. Actually, there was a blue one, which was the Greatest Hits, and then like a brown one, which was a um, a double album. And it it sort of shows me that I wanted more than just the Greatest. I was looking more. I wanted more songs. So – and this one had more b sidey um stuff um, that the Beatles – you know, like Mailman, um, Send Me No More Blues or Please Send Me No More Blues that the Beatles covered. Yeah. So um, so that's how I got in, into Buddy Holly, that I could go backwards through Don McLean.
0: That blue record, I'm pretty sure it was on the Summit label.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, and yes. I, I
0: remember my mum used to buy those Summit compilations. Yes. And they were as thick as dinner plates. Yeah. And they all had stacked with tracks.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would have, that rings a,
0: a bell. That would have been it. How great that John Fogerty got his songs back last week. Yeah, I read that. That's fantastic. I mean, when, um, when everybody else is selling theirs off, all those giants, yeah. it's great that he's buying them back.
1: <laughs> well, that's, I'm very, that must give him tremendous peace of mind. Yeah. Because um, this has driven him crazy for 50 years. So I'm I'm very very happy for him. I hope he finds some peace in that.
0: Yeah, I'm sure he will. Yeah, I think he will too. And mm. you know, you, you've made um, seven solo albums now. Yeah. And uh, the, the new one, the candle and the flame, it it's a great record. I've oh, played thank it you. A few times now. Thank you. And what I love about it is um, it's very feels very autobiographical. Yeah. But the urgency in the playing, the fact that the record feels very alive. Yes. And uh, this came about, um, I mean, there's there's two ends to the record, I suppose. You wrote the, the songs, the nine songs over three years, I understand. Yeah.
1: I wrote, there's nine songs on the record. I wrote eight of them over the previous three or four years. And then She's a Fighter, which is the first song on the record and was the first track to come out as like single with a video. I had the music written. Just before um, Karen got her diagnosis, and then I wrote the lyrics in response to just her fighting spirit, like how that she was going to deal with chemotherapy and all that sort of stuff that was going to come from the, the cancer diagnosis. And so I wrote there's just six lines in that song. She's a fighter, fighting for good. And so I that's the only new thing that I actually wrote after her diagnosis was those six words. And so. Yeah so I I sort of had I was thinking I would, I'd record an album yeah in 2022 mm. like the diagnosis came in July 2021 I thought it'd be you know like yeah I'll I'll do that next year um and if I write anything more it's a bonus mm. and um but yeah we just sort of started to play the songs as sort of something to do on those nights uh, we didn't, we had no plans to make a record, but we just sort of started to play the songs at night um, as a place to go to, as, as the, the therapy, the escape that music gave us was enormous um, after a day, hard days, and then just to sit around and strum with the guitar at night, it was like, you know, deep breath of fresh air, mind cleared, it was beautiful.
0: When I first heard She's a Fighter, I love the video clip, Mm -hmm. which I think you made at the studio where you recorded the album. Yeah, Alchemix. And it wasn't until I was sent the lyrics for the record, I realised there was only six words because it feels like there's so much happening (laughs) in the track.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's one of those songs, you know, like when I wrote the music, I just went, you know, I mean, you'd know as a songwriter, you know, like you write something really quick that's really moving fast. There's not time to tell a story here. You know, like it's like it's just going to be little grabs of stuff. And I just sort of thought, when 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 Karen started talking about how she was going to fight and do this, I just went, she's a fighter. And then a couple of days later, I got fighting for good. And that was all that I could put in, really, mm. you know. Um, it was just the music dictated that.
0: In terms of your songwriting process, I'm curious how that happens. Um, I remember years ago, you said to me, uh, I only write seven songs a year, and they're yeah. all classics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> A great line. Really two,
1: really just two. But anyway, you yeah, go
0: <laughs> what's the What's the process for the songwriting these days? I mean, when you get a germ of an idea, do you hang with it until completion or do you park things for a while? I've started to do that.
1: Um, I never used to do it. I was a great believer, and I still think this is good to... I really do think this is good to grab the moment if you can. You know, like, if I can write... If I'm really excited about a melody... Um, I'm really excited about the song. I'm really excited about the moment. I try and write the lyric in about two or three days. And and so it's like one experience. Because I've done that in the past, done that era of writing music and going, oh, yeah, I know what that's about. Yeah, look, and, you know, like, it's great. I'm really happy, but I'll just put it off, you know, put it off, this is happening. And then I come back in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and the feeling's hard to find. That, that excitement is like, you want ideas that I, you know, like you, you just don't it, you have to force it and it's hard work where in the, the, the joy of the moment when you write something can really carry you can write a lyric really quickly. Um, but I've started to actually um, um, just work on music um, and over time and, and not, you know, more the musical side of it. Like She's a Fighter, not She's a Fighter, 10 to Years, which is the second track. I wrote that music over a couple of weeks and then the lyric I, I just wrote it in bits and pieces, which I've never done over about six months. And I went, oh, I can, because I hear other songwriters talk, like Leonard Cohen talks about that. You know, he's a great one for, you know, I took a year and a half to write the lyric, you know, and I, I was always like,
0: that doesn't sound good.
1: <laughs> but
0: I can now see it, you know. There's that thing you know thine own self be true, yeah. and w- when I hear your music, mm. I always feel that it is authentically you, yeah you put yourself oh, in your yeah. your autobiographies in your set list, yeah. that the way you phrase a, a melody, yeah. the way you, everything is just uniquely you yeah. there's so much pressure on younger artists to yeah. be part of a system, conform to something. Where did that belief come from from day one that <laughs> always just going to be you're going to be the best Robert forced you could be i I,
1: I must have been willful, um, and I, it was. I think a lot was shaped by what I couldn't do. Um, I wasn't a great guitar player. Um, I, I didn't have a, a really broad, exhaustive knowledge of music. It was to me. It was all about focus on on. I really, you know, like that's something that I did was like, I knew that I could write good lyrics, and and lyrics probably, whether they were good or bad that other people couldn't, um, and that I had a a, a a way of looking at the world that I could get down on paper. So all those early songs like, you know, Karen and Lee Remick, and people say all those sort of early songs were, I had something to say, so that was good. There was a 1,000 guitar players better than me in Brisbane in the late 70s that couldn't write lyrics, but they were great players so i thought well i've got that and i just sort of um knew my guitar playing it and the music was going to be pretty basic and rhythmic and i worked on that so i you know when i was listening to like the first ramones album i bought that when it first came out that was a big breakthrough i was like oh this is really simple this is really uh straightforward like bowie was incredibly complicated although i loved him i know i couldn't i couldn't write life on mars mm but I could write Blitzkrieg bop. Do you know what I mean? It was that, Mm. that's just three chords. You know, there's no guitar solos. It's just every song's two minutes, 12 seconds. That's great. I I can do that. Or listening to the first Jonathan Richmond album, you know, like I listened to Roadrun, it was like A for six beats and D for two beats. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I can do that, (laughs) you know. Um, So that was my way in. And so that's just... You've got to put together what you can do. And I, I think that then starts to think of, you start to get willful for it and you know that you can do it. And then you write a couple of good songs and you go, yeah, okay, this is, this is what I can do and I'm just going to keep on following. I've got enough yeah um, to write
0: songs. Yourself and Grant McLennan obviously wrote a lot of songs together and mm. apart mm. over the period of The Go-Between's mm. life. Um, was there certain, uh, I guess, structures or tricks or things you would do to each other's songs that you apply to your own songs now? Do you ever think, oh, Grant would do this or I would do that to one of his songs?
1: Um, not really. Um, I I sort of... You know, like I was writing songs a couple of years before he started. And so I um, I started to see that Grant, see Grant, like I, I taught him to play bass in the band. And then so when he started to write songs, they were very riffy and, and they were very melodic because he was a bass player. Yeah, It's like McCartney, mm. you know you start to walk the notes, you start to, which I never did. I was chords mm. and little riffy things. But, but so Grant, you know, like was very, you know, like and people acknowledge, you know, like he was very melodic, far more than me in a traditional sense. But he started with the bass. And I think that's really um, a key thing. Um, I mean, I started to try and write more riffy things because I'd see him get stuff that um, I knew I had to open up my guitar playing because I was watching him. It was strange, he was watching me at the start and then I started to watch him. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. But anyway, I started to watch him playing. He was, the way he was doing songs, I I learned off that, which was a lot more riffy and chordy and riffy. And so that's something that's carried on in my songwriting. Um, That sort of um, riff-based stuff that that I got from Grant.
0: He did write great riffs. I remember he used to always say that Nick Cave accused him of stealing Cattle and Cane out of his guitar.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like he when when he was when Grant was on a roll, he could, you know, if you wouldn't see him for three weeks, six weeks, he'd have five things. Yeah, they were really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, when I was a young man, is one of the highlights. Oh yeah, for the record. Great. Um, and you name check your heroes in there, yeah. David and Lou and Tom. Yeah. That must have been a lot of fun, writing that.
1: It was. It was. I. 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 That was something that I, I can really – I'm really happy to have done. I wrote the melody, which I really, really liked. And then I wrote a lyric that I thought it fitted, but it, it felt like I was doing something I'd done before. It was like I wrote this in about 2018. And the lyric was something like I could have written back in about 2008 or mm. it was this sort of – it was nice – um but I thought this song's so good I've got a the lyrics got to go up a notch or I got to do something new and and so I just started I don't know how I did it like I just this idea of the young man um this idea of being 21 and then it just all flowed and, and it, it was just all Brisbane Chowong um what it was like being 21 and um just, you know, my family, you know, like what that was like and um, and just, yeah, you know, he's just writing it and suddenly I bought in, you know, and I've always thought of like the lyric is, you know, like I sing about Elder Brothers that, that I had at 21 and they were like David Bowie and Lou Reed who I called, you know, David and Lou in the song and then David Byrne and then Elder Brothers came along after that because um, Bowie and Lou Reed were more in the early mid-70s and, Burn and Tom Verlaine from television were more in the late 70s. Um, And that's what they were. They were my guiding lights, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, it was really nice to put them into the song. That was really – I was glad that I could come around, that I somehow opened this door where I could acknowledge them, you know.
0: That was nice. I remember when you came back to Brisbane in the 90s and um, you're the first person to lend me a Guy Clark record. I am. And people like Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt were important to you as a songwriter in
1: the 90s? Yeah, they are, and they still are. Like, I saw them, I saw Guy and Towns, um, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt play in Los Angeles in 1988. They They're playing a place called McCabe's that's closed down, unfortunately, through COVID. It was a guitar shop, very famous in Santa Monica, guitar shop by day, and then they'd have shows at night, they'd clear the floor and put a little stage there. And, um, like, Guy Clark was really um, – like, he'd put out a, – he's a Texan singer-songwriter um, who moved to Nashville in the early mid early 70s and, and made a couple of really classic singer-songwriter albums. Anyway, he – you know, I just saw them and um, just sitting there watching Guy play, I knew who he was and w- – we were playing there the next night. Grant, Amanda, and I we were doing the promo tour for Sixteen Lovers Lane. We we're doing this. We we're playing as a three-piece, doing showcase shows. So I went down to see them, and um, and so did Grant and Amanda, and then we we played the first night, and then they were playing the night after. And so um, and um, I remember seeing Guy, and it was just it was the first really great singer songwriter elder brother that was 20 feet away from me who played 12 songs that just took my head off and i just went great great songs that stand completely on acoustic guitar i've got to do that you know yeah. like and um so that was that was really a turning point and and i started to listen to a lot more of that I was sort of, at the late 80s, I won't go into it too much, but the late 80s, I was sort of, i have been listening to rock music for, since the early 70s, and I was just ready to just sort of, you know, there was a new generation, you know, like um, the Pixies and Dinosaur Junior, and then all of these sort of um, Manchester bands like the Happy Monday, they didn't really talk to me, Mm. Um, and I just couldn't go down that route. Uh, I just didn't want to. I know. I, I was open for them and I listened to them, but it, it didn't touch me the way this sort of singer-songwriter country stuff from the 70s suddenly did. And so I, I got a lot more into that.
0: Tell me about making the new record. Um, I understand there was no baffles between you. It was the, the band yeah. in the room, is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, we sort of went in and, and we did an eight a 10-song document before karen was going to have an operation in late september um 2001 um so she'd done chemo and then she was going to have this big medical procedure and so we decided to document the music that we'd made in our house and so it was um, myself karen and she was singing and playing vibraphone adele on bass and lewis uh forster on acoustic guitar and we just sat there and we played without headphones. Like I, I just said at the start of the session, I don't, I don't want headphones. We've been playing at home acoustically. I don't wanna, I don't wanna suddenly block my ears. And, I, and so we did the demo, not a demo, document. Mm-hmm. And two of those songs are on the record from that day. Um, it's Only Poison and I Don't Do Drugs, I do, I do Time, are from that, where we weren't even thinking about making a record. Um, and then when we started to record, we decided to make a record and we, th- we l- were going to base it on those two songs that approach and Curran didn't have time to – there was no time to go to rehearsal rooms or – there was, you know, and so I'd been thinking I wanted to do an album of live vocals anyway because I've done a few things in the past where I've done them and I've loved them. And so I was up for – I'm not going to overdub any vocals. We haven't got time. Um – And so we just started to, that spirit from our lounge room when we were rehearsing to that day in the studio, to starting to do days where we were recording the album, all came from that, let's just play live, just a few overdubs. Um, And so even a track like, it got to like a a big track, like Tender Years, I was like in the studio, Um, I I had no headphones on, acoustic guitar, like mic. The drums were in a booth, but the door was open so I could hear the drums. Mm. Um, Luke was playing bass, electric bass. I could just get the right amount. You push the bass back a little bit. Yep, that's good. Lewis is over there on electric guitar. Yep, that's great. Put the amp a little bit that way. We start playing. Yep, I've got the balance. And we did a five and a half minute take. And the, the, the vocal that you hear, the acoustic guitar, the drums, the bass and the electric guitar are all live. And we just recorded like that. That's and, fantastic. And it was like – and that's one of the reasons why – Great song. Oh, thank you. Why we picked that studio too because I thought we were going to be doing live stuff and it was a big room. And so I thought we couldn't we – we needed space.
0: Yes, yes. And then you sent the files to Victor
1: yeah I, I, I sort of wanted to take it out and and throw it Victor van Butte who did recorded my last album and um, mixed it um, in Berlin um he's done Nick Cave records and PJ harvey and and Beth orton records he's done he's like yeah very well known and um, I just, Said to Victor, I just thought, let's record it here in Brisbane, and if we've got the budget, let's throw it over to Berlin, and and um, and Victor is a really great mixer, and it was like, let's just sort of give that the twist, and so, uh, and so it worked really well. It was like a great. Fortunately, the budget just made it, and we were able to record in Brisbane and mix
0: it in Berlin. Mixers are beautiful.
1: Yeah, Victor. Victor is just. Uh, i mean she's a fighter you know like we just had lots of overdubs we did a rough mix and everything you know it's that you know, every trick that we had is in the first first verse <laughs> you know and and i said to victor that i said look there's miles of stuff on this strip it back and and he just placed everything and it was just like like we listened to that it was like whoa. it was like we hadn't even played on it was like whoa wow yeah
0: yeah no victor is really really good and, and generally with mixing records, is there much toing and froing in terms of, you know, do, do people often send you multiple versions or do they focus on the one version and you adjust it?
1: Well, one version and we, I adjusted. it. Um, we'd sort of done a little bit of this on the last record because, on Inferno, because um, Victor had his own studio at, at that time in Berlin and so we recorded there and he started to send me mixes. It's the first time I'd ever done that, being away from the mixing process and been listening to it on the computer. It worked really well. And uh, I'm not – I'm fussy, but I, I don't drive anyone crazy. You know, like there's little bits and pieces. Um, and it it really happened quite – you know, Victor would send a mix and we'd listen to it and then go back. There might be at the maximum three times we go back. Yeah. Um, we, I've seen other people – just lose themselves in that. So, you know, like you, you can get, as you know, you, you can get lost in mixed land where really the good mix is about <laughs> 25 back, you know. Do you know what I mean? Like the third mix you did or the second or even the first um, and you're just getting further away from
0: what it should be. What's that great thing about Burt Bacharach recording Ciddle Black at Abbey Road doing Alfie? All oh, right, And then it's like Take 100. Yeah. And George Martin says to Bert backrack, what are you looking for Bert?" And he goes just that little bit of magic George and he <laughs> said I think it was on take 17
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's really easy to do um but Victor is so I mean that's another reason why I work with him because've I've worked with him now this is the third album I've done with him and he and, and I, he, he he was alive he mixed the go-betweens in the 80s live. Before he really got into studio work, um, he used to mix the moodists, He used to mix the Fall. He used to mix Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And so he's sort of um, someone that knows my music as yeah, well. Yeah. So I mean, and I think that's really important. Someone who knows what you do, and Victor just, just, I just love what he does. He puts Sheen and 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 stuff, but it's all
0: real and really good. He 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 does a really good job. And with the production credits, it's, it's down to Karen, yourself and yeah. Lewis. When do you know an album's finished? I, I've heard people say you don't really finish, you have to abandon.
1: Yeah. Um, I – gee, that's a good question. Uh, I sort of – what it comes down to is I'm not – After this is not the reason – but I'm the type of person who, after about three weeks in a recording studio, I want to get out. Yeah, right. You know, like I, I, I want to get back to real life. I, I, I enjoy this holiday. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and but there's people, um, who could live in the studios. Yeah. And 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 I think it's for them. It's never finished because they don't want to leave the studio. You know, like there's this thing we can tinker on, and we can. And days are going by, and maybe if you know, especially if you've got a home studio, and you're not paying anyone, yeah, or it's sure. very very low, you can just keep on tinkering and tinkering, and you're happy. The record's never going to get made, but you're happy. <laughs> you're very very happy because you're going to go in and redo the guitar for the lick for the fifth time. But I, I'm, and I, but I don't think this is when I know it's finished. But I'm not. A studio creature, and so I'm always happy to leave after about three weeks.
0: But there's a real art, isn't there, too, to sequencing a record. Do you spend a yeah. lot of time on that?
1: Yes, a lot. I think that's enormously important. I spend a lot of the, on that. I probably spend more time on that and always have than mixes. Yeah, right. Because that's what the order that people are gonna hear it in, and and that's always been, um, you know, like. I must have been taking it in when before I made records when I was listening to Hunky Dory or Station to Station or, or what, what, whatever albums, Desire, whatever I was listening to before I, you know, um, first Patti Smith album, whatever, mm. I'd be listening and I must have been going, oh, yeah, that's why they're doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's – I must have been paying attention to that.
0: I understand too you're working on the third G's for Go Between's yeah. volume. Do you still feel like you're in the band?
1: No. Um, um, oh, my God, that's. Um, I, 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 to an extent, it's funny, you know, like th- this reminds me of something I've never said. It was a really good question. Paul McCartney, someone must have asked him, and no one had asked him this, but pretty recently, uh, do you still dream about the Beatles? And McCartney went, Yes. And 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 he said, you know, and I dreamed that, you know, we've got a show and, you know, I'm trying to get it together. And you know, like John's over there and you know, like and I'm really worried and no one else is worried and, you know, we've got to do a show. Exactly the sort of dreams I have about the GO twins. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like and that's the only thing I dream about the band. It's like, <laughs> but you know, like we've got to be on stage and you know, like we've got to Um, which must speak to his um, angst about being in the band and and mine as well, like this lingering psychological thing. But that's really probably the most intrusive way it comes into me. But, yeah. Um, But, no, I think... um, um, I enjoy hearing things and seeing things and that's part of the box set process is finding tracks and demos and looking at photos and people turn up stuff and I love that, you know, looking at things and just going, oh, that's great, you know.
0: Um, but in the band itself, no, not really. It's funny you mention McCartney. I interviewed him once oh, yeah. and uh, we were just chatting towards the end and obviously the Beatles came up and he said to me um, – I know the Beatles are over, sort of. And the sort of spoke volumes, really. Yeah. Because he's still in the, he's still a Beatle.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, um, and I guess there's a small, there, I mean, it depends how you do the sort of, but I, you know, like I'm still a part of the band, you know, like I, and, and very proud of it and really, really happy. Um, I just think that they've crossed into some sort of world consciousness that, uh, that, he, that uh, He can obviously – it's so overwhelming. Um, Maybe that's the sort of. I don't know.
0: I guess in a way too you're from the go-betweens. You're sort of curating now, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, those beautiful volumes you're putting out. And you say things are still turning up under –
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Volume 3 is going to be amazing because there's so much – Unreleased stuff and like for a start, there's demos to the three albums to Rachel Worth, Bright Yellow, Bright Orange, and um, oh,
0: that would Ocean's Park down in Berwick Street, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, we we did stuff there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a really good session. Yes, that's from 2002 August, twelve songs, and um, um, with that guy, Chris.
0: I remember hearing yeah. that stuff, and yeah,
1: yeah, he was really really great, and he. Um, He, that's a really good session. And so, and no one's heard any of this because none of it ever leaked out. None of it's ever come out. And so there's just stuff, there's stuff of, you know, like us doing demos um, with Grant, uh, a couple of songs that, that this is the only evidence of them, you know, because he wrote so much. So there'd be always, there's, you know, like two or three songs that just never, never surfaced. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really incredible stuff.
0: So on the Time the Talk podcast, you know, we inter- I interview famous musicians, yeah. uh, actors, oh yeah, um, artists occasionally, but the niche we have going is um, former cricketers. Oh, yeah. So we've had some great people. I don't think there's only a couple under 70s. I'm the only people that played in the 70s. And I read uh, that great essay you wrote about your hero, Doug Walters. Yes. What do you remember about Dougie?
1: Well see, Dougie was important because um he I was a very keen cricketer. Like it was like a religion in my family. And um so I was a I was a schoolboy cricketer. I started when I was six, you know, at school, mm. primary school. And the thing with Doug Walters was, and I think this is the nineteen sixty five tour of England, very famous. England coming out here sixty-five. And Walters was picked, and I think he was 18 or 19. And and I would have been eight. And the thing was that, you know, like all those cricketers, like, you know, like even the Australian team, at the, you know, Bobby Simpson and um, Bill Laurie and all these guys were older guys, you know, and then, you know, like, and like Bradman and all these, you know, Keith Miller, all these people were still alive and were huge – and so Walters came in, he was a teenager, and I could just go, he's 10 years older than me, 10 years older than me, and he's batting number four or five in Australia. It felt really close, yeah. you know, like, and they are playing at the Gabba, like it was the first test. And so it's like this teenage kid, you know, is playing, um, and then he scored 100 in his first test. Did
0: you go to the game?
1: No. Because he got
0: 150. Fact, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and that, then he scored 100, I think, in the second test. He did. And um, and it, it, he was a sensation, and so he – and he was just like this knockabout, you know, like carving it up, you know, not the Bill Laurie, Jeff Boycott, yeah. John Edrich, you know, like building – Colin Cowdery building an image. You know, he was square cutting and pulling, you know, off middle stump and doing all of this sort of stuff and um, very dashing and, you know, like – you know, the 19-year-old country boy. And so, like, he just sort of grabbed my imagination totally, absolutely totally. And I followed him, you know, like, always, you know, like what he was doing until he retired and, you know, 73, 74.
0: It's funny. Greg Chapel was on the podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, he said he got out in Perth like 10 minutes before lunch. Right. And uh, when Doug was passing him, he said, I've set it up for you to get a 100 in a session. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> him literally
1: <laughs> yeah that was yeah i think i watched that on tv i th- oh, was something i don't know i can remember that innings
0: yeah it's, it's on youtube right it's very famous and uh are you heading off on tour talking about tours
1: yeah i'm doing um a tour of um england oh, uk ireland germany and austria sounds a lot but I'm, I'm just doing it all in three weeks because, uh, you know, I just don't want to be away too long. Um, so it's a short tour, very compact. Um, and I'm doing it with Lewis. He's going to play um, guitar and bass. And then um, just a two-piece. And then I'm playing here in May. And I'll probably do the boat myself. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's too far away. But yeah, sort of I've got these two tours and we'll just see where it goes from there. I'm really looking forward to playing because obviously haven't toured in three years. So, you know, like I'm really, really looking forward to playing more than I have, you know, I always do, but
0: yeah, it's very strong. And uh, you, you always wonder with artists, what's next? Have you started the seeds of what might follow up? Are you writing anything at the moment? I'm
1: writing, um, I always write, I always think that, you know, the songwriting is, i going to put aside, but I, I love tinkering on the guitar. Mm. And so things come, um, the funny thing is for the first time, I've got no lyrics. I'm like, for the first time ever, you know, I'm 65 in my songwriting career. I, because I just don't know where things are going. You know, yeah. like I'm, we're living very much, I just haven't – I don't know what what the next subject is. Yeah. Um, And so I'm just sort of – really just got a few tunes that I really like. Um, Lyrics will come one day. um, There'll be something to write about. Um, So I'm just sort of doing it that way, which is new, you know.
0: Well, thanks, Robert. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolute pleasure, Sean. Lovely to be here. Lovely to talk to you.